Welcome to season four of Drifter's Sympathy. The first half of this season is all about the invention of home recording initially, as it was born of a technological need, but it inadvertently paved the way for people like me to exist and a whole new generation of what we might call the diarists. Every facet of modern recording as we know it pretty much leads back to this one person that you're listening to right now. Les Paul is an actual human god in the sense that he gave people freedom. Because his name is on such a famous electric guitar, most people think of him as a pioneer of the electric guitar. But much more importantly to people like me, he is the father of the overdub. What I think is so fascinating about the dual levels of what he did is that he opened up a punk window for people to explore themselves and expose themselves. And in some way you could argue that the advent of home recording inherently invents an underground because it is a private practice that pulls the entire idea of capturing yourself outside of the music industry. The entire cosmology of our collective musical idols was generally brought to us by a major label system that from the very, very beginning of recording technology was completely interested in money over cultural preservation. So even though we think of Les Paul as part of the industry, he was really an outsider whose ideas were reluctantly integrated as it was him that built the central technological bridge that ended up giving the common person the power to be creative on their own outside of this mainstream structure. Thus, Paul's inventions are driven by the same kind of pure frustration that pushes someone through a spiritual transformation, which is something that we're going to be going into in the story episodes. But for today, let's go back to the father of the four-track and simpler times. came to visit me in 1946 in Chicago. She says, Lester, it's good to see you. I heard you last night on the radio. And I said, Mom, you couldn't have heard me. I'm on the stage here with the Andrews sisters. And she says, well, then you better do something about it because there's a lot of people copying you. And I thought about it. So I decided to go home and decided to go back to Hollywood Locked myself in that garage until I get a sound that I'm looking for. What are you looking for? Well, I can't tell you I haven't found it yet. Originally, Les Paul's frustration is driven by a very simple dissatisfaction. He just has a lot of ideas that he wants to express very quickly, and he doesn't want to teach a full band, and he's not even interested in the sound that they would make. 
So at a time when it would have been literally insane to imagine this, he's dreaming of a machine that could multiply himself hundreds of times over into an entire big band. His talent was already so advanced he'd be able to play as the entire band seamlessly. His production vision was already so developed that he knew exactly how to render it. But the fact that he actually followed through had the focus and drive to sit out in his garage and invent a process to be able to become the whole band and send that out in the world as an alien message, something nobody had ever heard before. They hadn't even heard the simplicity of rock and roll yet, and here is a new species being born. They could have grown up on Beethoven and Stravinsky, but they'd never heard someone with total control. People had also attempted to achieve multi-tracking. Sidney Bechet had used it in 1941 to play six instruments on his Chic of Araby 78. And the French musique concrete masters Pierre Schaeffer and Pierre Henri had been developing their own splicing and echo techniques at the same time overseas. Les Paul understood the avant-garde application of all of these processes, but what was ironically very radical about him was that as a jazz guitarist, the viewpoint was assumed that you wanted to be a purist and avoid the mainstream, but he was very comfortable venturing into pop territory and looked and found Mary Ford to sing songs that he knew could hit number one. And he would do this over and over and over again. But that was just icing on the cake. He'd been pitching these multi-track ideas since the 30s. And no one at the electronic companies or the labels really supported his ideas. I think that they thought it was too expensive and wasn't relevant yet. Like, music hadn't even caught up to his mind. So he stowed away in his garage building this equipment until he could unimpeachably prove himself to the industry. And at first he did this by scoring seven number ones just with his acetate to acetate process. This has taken years to search for the right flywheels and car parts to assemble these record-writing machines that can talk to each other. But in 1948, he cracks the code and changes the world forever. The Les Paul Show. If you think you're hearing double during the next 15 minutes, why, you'll be perfectly right. And so by way of warning, the program is electrified, multiplied, and transcribed, fresh out of a recording machine. And by way of music, here's that guitar man himself, Les Paul. You go out and get some trumpets, you go out and get some violins, you can do anything. But I don't want the same sounds. I want sounds that have never been heard on Earth. I want new sounds. 
Guitar manufacturers were slow to catch on to Les Paul's electric guitar designs. They didn't listen to him about the first multi-tracking possibilities. And the sessions that created his early hits were so messy and difficult, getting the exact balance that he wanted took him over 500 tries on different acetate records, was proving to be very expensive. So he knew he wanted to innovate some way to use tape heads to record over yourself infinitely. Bing Crosby is one of his best friends. He has power and connections, gets one of the very first Ampex mono recorders, brings it by. Les Paul convinces Ampex to give him an extra tape head, doesn't tell them why, and fashions up the first multi-track machine. So after two decades of dreaming of this magical overdubbing machine, Les Paul gets to issue his first experiment in revenge to the industry. Because it's basically a sonic anomaly coming from the future, it hits the charts like a bomb and decimates everything else in its path, forever changing the lives of all the kids who'd start the Beatles and the Rolling Stones 10 years later. 1951's How High the Moon. that's already made and then she sings on to it somewhere there's music how faint the tune somewhere there's heaven how high the moon now oh. i'll add a tenor part to that you're on somewhere there's music how faint the tune somewhere there's heaven how high the moon in 1953, Ampex finally announced they'd developed an 8-track machine using the technology that Les Paul handed to them without even patenting. Illuminating William James' old saying about how in the beginning they will doubt you and say it can't be done, but once you put the idea into the world and it's proven to work, they'll say they thought of it. The spiritual emphasis here is how the struggle for independence, fueled by frustration, causes necessary innovation. Our 
Across the ocean, Joe Meek picked up where Les Paul had left off and fought against the machine of the recording industry. In Britain, it was much, much more conservative. The white lab coat myth is real. You weren't allowed to distort anything or mic anything closely. That's why distortion was such a revelation for guitarists, and Jimmy Page had to sneak into the studio along with Eric Clapton because they'd gotten one of the first Les Pauls and Marshall amps, and together they could achieve the most sustain anyone had ever heard on a guitar. It was going to take a black sheep, someone to break away, totally independent, someone who was going to sneak in at night, run the drum set through a bunch of echo, overdrive the bass, flange the entire mix. These are things that weren't allowed. And Joe Meek fought his way through the system up until the point where it actually drove him mad. Unfortunately, Joe Meek was also going crazy in real life. But in the early days, that seemed to fuel his inventions. He started building some of the first effects boxes, reverb tanks out of garden hoses and household springs. And he's rightfully famous for many innovations, compression tricks, also turning down David Bowie and Rod Stewart at their first vocal auditions. All in all, looking back, Joe Meek is probably most important as the very first independent producer that broke away from the recording studios and from his own label was able to hit the charts from his own bedroom. Now, hitting the charts from your own bedroom is already insane, but having invented all the equipment you're using is actually crazy. And unfortunately, he really was losing his mind.
back corridors of Joe Meek's mind, he was still very, very concerned with impressing his mother and making her feel that he had really, truly arrived and achieved some sort of London success. If you come from outside of London back then, there's this idea you're never going to make it. And you carry with you the sense that you're not really the metropolitan sort. The Beatles themselves were truly driven by that kind of underdog mentality. 1963 is the big turning point for Joe Meek when he is found in a public bathhouse soliciting sex from undercover officers who are out to basically humiliate and ruin people. This really seems to break Joe Meek's mind when his mother finds out about this, and he does not really ever recover. His somewhat dormant schizophrenia generally explodes at this point, and he believes there are microphones in the wall where competing labels are stealing his secrets. Phil Spector calls him to ask friendly questions about his production because he's influenced by him. He hangs up the phone angrily because he's certain he's stealing things. He becomes a sweaty mess that won't even speak out loud anymore. If you come into his studio, he'll only communicate through notes that he scribbles hastily and passes to you to avoid getting his secrets stolen. This spirals faster and faster out of control until he takes a shotgun, blows away his landlady, and then blows his own head off. Soon the Beatles would arrive and Joe Meek would almost be forgotten forever. Like Lee Hazelwood, who pioneered the first super reverb sounds by actually hunting down an oil tank and getting it towed over to the recording studio, Joe Meek would be pulled out of his posthumous retirement by record nerds everywhere and rightfully celebrated as a psychedelic production pioneer along with others like Lee Scratch Perry who went out on their own chasing frequencies nobody else seemed to be able to hear. Home recording is the domain of technicians originally. But Les Paul, Joe Meek, Lee Scratch Perry, and Lee Hazelwood are people on labels with money. And as technology opens the doors for the layman, a whole new breed of natural musician can harness this power and independence. Thinking about David Bowie going in to visit Joe Meek, here's this famous producer that's going to break you. But if you realize that he is not a musician himself, he's a bit of a scientist, he can't hold a tune, and he can't play any instrument, then the man with his hands on the controls is kind of the man. He's not one of you. Inevitably, once you give the control and the technology to the people on the street, something new is going to happen and something new would explode and rather quickly not long after les paul had given ampex this technology the freaks would take over
Keith is a very complicated addition to this lineage, but I'm including him because he perfectly exemplifies what could be done by one person with Les Paul's technology. He was considered the Mozart of the song poem composers. In the 60s and 70s, especially in the back of magazines, there were these little ads that were kind of fake invitations to become a classic famous songwriter. Really what was happening is they were charging you to pay for your own 7-inch. A little backroom band would crank out some genre-specific stock music and somebody would sing the lyrics you sent it. Now, in the pantheon of this complicated hustle was the god of song poems, Rod Keith, a man who could do it all by himself and use this thing called the Chamberlain, which was a pre-Mellotron keyboard that ran tapes of pre-recorded instruments so it could sound like he had an orchestra at his disposal all by himself.
So the sad part is that nobody ever got to hear Rod do what he wanted to do for his own records because he was trying to pay the bills by getting lyrics written and set in from senior citizens and very, very lonely people. He himself considered the job a form of prostitution and was known to be on several different kinds of substances while tracking sometimes. Maybe just because he grew more and more insanely bored, he was known to be so natural at making music that it it almost didn't even seem like it was entertaining his mind at the end. The onset of some kind of mental illness seemed to amplify as his second wife left him and stories began to circulate about him wandering the streets naked and becoming obsessed with making a movie where the main character jumps off a freeway overpass. For reasons totally unknown, he ended up doing that himself in December of 74, and people still wonder if it was an accident, but it seems like he just lost any reason to distinguish between fantasy and the real thing. Sorry for the sorrow I caused, but there's a lot more sorrow for me. And I know my wife and kids can live on my double indemnity. I just watched the hearse pull out and the family drive away. It's awfully hard for me to go But you know, I died today Now that recording technology is drifting into the hands of the everyman We have a new kind of underdog star that's going to rise up Probably before you could call anyone an underdog star was a guy named Hazel Adkins in West Virginia, born in 1937, and home recording extremely early, back in the 50s, issuing his own singles by 62. Not a surprise that he wasn't well known, but he's so far ahead of everybody and living out this kind of sovereign nation reality Recording up on his roof, playing bass drum with his feet and guitar with his hands to really no one but the trees. When asked why he played all the instruments himself at home, he responded that having heard Jimmy Rogers and Hank Williams on the radio as a kid, he just assumed that the idea of a solo artist was that they were playing everything he heard. And for someone who we think of as an eccentric that just lives out in the woods, the line blurs here because when you discover someone like this, it might turn out that they sound just as good as their heroes. I'm happy. 
Hazel Atkins pretty much officially kicks off this new phenomena that I'm calling the diarists. These people used home technology to document their daily lives, sometimes broadcasting extreme loneliness, and sometimes it was less morose. They just wanted to be discovered. But Hazel Atkins was around for so long that he accidentally dips into a whole new era. We tend to throw back to our own culture on 20-year intervals. Growing up in the 80s, everything on TV, documentaries, everything was about the 60s. And it makes sense to me now that for the Ramones to usher forth this punk fashion, they weren't going to draw from the fucking hippies. They were going to go back to the greaser culture. So it's of massive significance that the Cramps discovered Hazel Adkins and his songs about decapitation and fucking your sister against a car because the consciousness of the new punk movement met with something that was truly authentic in its eyes and it got to look up to an authentic hero, somebody from the trenches that actually represented life on the street. All these good kids that were in the talking heads weren't going to sing about actual incestual experiences. I think this new self-conscious movement reached back for an idol and saw an actual punk icon and a person that was disenfranchised but wasn't ashamed. And punk wore that. When I walk up, his body should have seen what I had in the bed with me. He jumped up out of bed, pulled his hand down his eye. Looked at me like a guy in Canada that commodity me. He said, he said, I'm sure from the garage explosion on, kids always use shitty instruments, but at what point did one kid say, no, 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 that shitty one sounds better? That's where the new shift kicked off. But before we go into that, we have to talk about the people that were on the fence, that were one leg in the past, one leg in the future. And quite simply, there's one person that straddled that fence and gave their entire life to it, and his name is R. Stevie Moore. Writing the melodies light 
Stevie Moore was born in 1952, the son of Bob Moore, most famous as Elvis's bass player, played with Roy Orbison and is documented on over 17,000 recording sessions and a member of the Nashville A-Team in the 50s and 60s. So our Stevie grew up in a massive shadow that he could not eclipse. What's interesting about that is that he did It's just that maybe like a crater in Mexico that turns out to be the result of an asteroid that hit the Earth 5,000 years ago. We can now see, looking back, that R. Stevie Moore is much more important than the world seemed to allow him to be at the time. In fact, I think he really represents the underdog victory that we're carving out today with this group of people, this spiritual core is embodied in a song like Hobbies Galore that just played the entire self-reflexive loner reality that he is experiencing as he sings 
to no one represents the transmogrification of the loner into the hero in his own world. This is him taking what he knows might be failure and turning it into spiritual gold. phrase before their time doesn't really ever come naturally to me because these people were of their time. It's just that everybody else was too fucking slow to catch up. It's not our Stevie's fault that everybody else is stupid, but it is difficult when your father is coming home from his sessions with the most famous country players in the world and they inevitably don't know what the fuck you're doing down in the basement and it's just not marketable yet. But here we are now in our full capabilities to interpret the past. And we can redefine this ourselves by getting a lot of use out of somebody who poured themselves into their basement reality and in a deprivation tank wrung out some hardcore truths. Thank you. 
R. Stevie Moore was a hero of ideas. He wanted to try anything, and that was his freedom that he seized. He understood that. He didn't have people over his back. He was free. Operating on a planet of his own, following his ideas wherever they may go, existing in a vacuum, whereas Hazel Adkins was reaching out for the world to receive him with a kind of primal urgency. R. Stevie Moore's career asks a much more complex question about a tree falling in the woods with no one there to potentially hear it. None of this is lost on R. Stevie Moore. This isn't naive music. The self-reflexiveness of it is what's so touching. Song after song, album after album, which are all listed on his band camp, by the way, if you want to support him. He continually turns back the mirror onto what he's doing. Songs like, I can't afford no food. What is a song? Why can't I write a hit? What do I do with the rest of my life? He's easy to champion because the struggle is never lost on our Stevie. He pushes new levels of self-awareness past where anyone else would be comfortable going, titling records like Unpopular Singer Volume 6 and Our Stevie Quits.
it's so interesting that Les Paul gave the plans for the multi-track machine over to Ampex without wanting to put his name on it or patent it in any way. Because it shows that his intention was in music first and not capitalism. So he just wants to live in a world where these machines exist. And by handing them over to the masses, he sets loose a therapy machine for all of these freaks to explore themselves and unfurl their own genius, but also giving us access by shining a light straight into the human condition. The next volume will focus on those freaks that were an explosion of the 80s, a time when underground music was simmering so violently because everybody was unleashed by this idea that commercialism may not even exist anymore. And with home recording technology at its height and becoming cheaper than it ever was before, this whole new breed spilled out their entrails onto home tapes, causing probably home recording's renaissance period. (laughs) 